Ah, another Tuesday night. I'm really glad I don't have to do that podcast anymore. So, let's see, uh, open up my Steam here. Let's see what I got. Oh, man. Oh, Ryan. Oh, hey, Ryan. Big week. How's it going? I haven't talked to you since last time. Last time? That was like a month ago. A month? Maybe not. Maybe two weeks ago. Do you want to do a show? I'd love to do a show. Hang on here. Oh. Oh, I forgot how to do one of these. Oh! So, uh, hey everyone, this is Control Structure episode 52. Uh, let's see, this would be our 53rd episode, but yeah, 52, that's, uh, that's one for every week of the year. That's pretty impressive. Yes, this is, uh, December 17th, 2013. It's almost Christmas time. So, I am your host, Andrew Bailey, and, uh, hi, hi Ryan, how you doing? I am quite well, thank you. So, uh, stuff happened. Lots of stuff happened. You know, it's been a while. It has been quite a while there. You know, I had my, uh, you know, sort of 50th episode retro species. You know, I thought you were going to say 50th birthday, and I was going to say not really. (laughs) 50th podcast birthday, maybe. Okay, fine then. (laughs) Um... Yeah, and then uh, had uh, Matthew on there, and that seemed pretty good. And then, yeah, pretty much, uh, you know, took a break there for a while. The breaks are good. Everybody needs a break. So, you know, I sort of, you know, released myself from the slavery of a calendar. But, you know, you're still doing better than our friend at the universe. Um, (laughs) you You know, like... A break, you know, every billion years, not like every trillion. So I thought it was once every apocalypse. Wait, well, it is, but <laughs> see, the, the the Mayan calendar stopped working now, so it's hard to predict when that is. Um, it's also hard to predict when uh, asteroids will re-enter the atmosphere. Yes, unless they burn up when they get too close to the sun. So that happens too. That does. Uh, in that case, you didn't have an episode. Right. Strange how that happens. It's just strange how episode recording works. <laughs> so, you know, I've I haven't seen Steven for a while. I mean, oh, that's that's too bad. Yeah, in the past month, I've seen him maybe once or so. So, does, does uh, he live around there, or, or, or um, he sort know. of lives around here? I only get to see him at church. Okay, and it's not like a normal church on Sundays. No, he he, I see him on Thursday nights. Interesting. Thursday nights. Yeah. Um, in fact, in fact, I remember being at a uh, baseball game once with my pastor. He had just incidentally had brought a few people in from Virginia, I think. And uh, so I get there, and it's a Wednesday night, and the place is packed. Mm-hmm. And I tell pastor, you know, hey, you know, I I didn't think this many people would show up at a baseball game because everyone goes to church on Wednesday nights. <laughs> That's everyone, pretty funny. Everyone else goes to church homes. <laughs> right. Well, so, you know, perspective changes that, I guess. So, um, 
Yeah, I might have to talk to him again. So, anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of things exploding, I'm not exactly sure how uh, DNA could explode. Uh, I don't know if it can, but maybe it might someday. Well, someone has drawn analogs between code and, you know, like, computer code and DNA. I feel like people have done this for years. Yeah. So, and it uh, pretty much explains that, uh, you know, DNA is essentially byte code for the virtual runtime known as the Nucleus. So, and then it goes on, it's like, so, you know, code can, uh, you know, fork its own process in the same way that DNA can fork bomb a cell and become cancer. Well, I, I love the concept of spe- cells are not spawned, they are forked. That's just so so true and so right. Yes. It feels good. So, and then, you know, it goes on, it's like, yeah, some, you know, some code changes rapidly, other parts are, you know, like, sacred and holy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, you know, certain genes, like, are never mutated because they're so core to the operation of life. Well, and I like the binary patching, also known as gene therapy. <laughs> binary patching, that's how Chrome works. <laughs> so, at least at least with Chrome, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of, you know, makes sense because Chrome is a multi-process browser. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fire up another process is like, oh, it's, you know, version, you know, 127, whereas all the other tabs are 126. Darn. <laughs> Uh-huh. Incompatible. So. Well, the, I, I feel like uh, the, um, like, when I took biology classes, I always felt like the, like, RNA, the, um, I don't even know what fake those Fake DNA. Are. But the, yeah, the fake DNA with the letters, like, <laughs> I don't know what they are anymore. But I always felt that those letters, I think it's idine, thymine, something, and glomine. Yeah. Those things always seemed to me like the DNA equivalent of binaries. So instead of being yeah. just two, there was four. Right. Uh, and then that secret fifth one that would only be there sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, got a real good kick out of this. So, and uh far as I know, seems pretty accurate. So, uh, anyways, uh, even though Chris is long gone... Uh, Long we, gone, huh? Yeah, we have a Kickstarter of the week. Good. Yes. Um, so, are you a fan of sort of sci-fi shows? I am a fan of sci-fi in general, yes. Well, you might want to check this out. Uh, Space Janitors, uh, it's uh, sort of like a mini web series, um, has is now kickstarting their season three. And I believe it was just in the past day or two they have... Uh, gone over their goal of 30,000 loonies. This is our Canadian dollars. um, With 25 days to go. So, and uh, I believe if you... uh, So, yeah, I guess all uh, access tiers, the rewards are uh, immediate access to their sort of secret, uh, uh, like, video archive of their previous seasons as well. So I went ahead and, uh, you know, got the $50 level, which has the DVD. So, yeah, uh, it's 
It's sort of, if you can imagine Star Wars, but uh, from the point of view of a lowly janitor. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's interesting. So it'd be like, um, kind of like uh, less than a red shirt in Star Trek. I I think you can say that. Yeah, you know they yeah. don't they don't really leave the ship, and you know they're they sort of sit back and you know, you know they're sort of aware of larger drama going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for like at one instance, they uh, completely borked the big giant space laser. That's a very accurate name for something that can burn things. And um, uh, he, one of them apparently uh, impersonated the Emperor, uh, which was rather hilarious. Um, But uh, yeah, it's it's the little things in life. Uh, Of course. It's, you know, uh, one episode dealt with them, you know, doing a psych evaluation and uh, one of them uh, was assigned to another group. And it's like, why am I being assigned to another group? So, but uh, yeah, I uh, found this rather hilarious. And I believe our good friend Buckface uh, you know, is a fan of this as well. So, I can see that he would be a big fan of this, indeed. So, and uh, uh, you probably haven't heard of another web series called Pure Ownage. No. Um, I believe the uh, director behind that is also a director for this. So, which I didn't really find out until I was watching, like, the third episode of the first season a while back. It's like, oh, so that's what this guy is doing now. Now, so, of course, because you you asked, I I decided to look pure ownage up. But being the internet internet noob that i am i spelled own a drawing i spelled it with an o and not a p clearly i'm not good at this yeah um they're pretty much the only people i know of that spells ponage or at least pronounces ponage as ponage right yeah i I guess i'm just not good at that i also like that it's a mockumentary that's uh pretty pretty good yeah those are the best uh i think that started coming out about 10 years ago that's uh, pretty old, and it basically follows a the exploits and antics of a uh, how should I say an addictive uh, real time strategy game player. Mm. Uh, uh, let's see, his uh, friend FPS Doug plays FPSs and is like really extremely hyper. <laughs> I see. Well, you've got to you got to watch out for that kind of thing. You know, you, you can't be hyper when you're trying to work on your strategy. Yeah, yeah, that's another series to check out. But uh, yeah, so I I have a Kickstarter here too. It's it's going to be down to the wire, so it it might not make it for anyone to actually help it. But I I think they've passed their goal. So uh, the Kickstarter that I have been watching has been the magazine The Book Year One. Okay. And, and so, and so, have you ever heard of Marco Arment? Uh, the name rings a slight bell. Well, that's good because if his bell was ringing louder, he might yell at you. Well, see, the thing is, um, here at the Nexus, we like copying a lot, and mm-hmm. so at the time of inception, that's where I heard it. <laughs> at the time of inception, Marco had a show on called I don't even remember anymore, and. <laughs> 
And and so he um, made a business making Instapaper, one of the uh, famous mm-hmm. read it later services on iOS and Android. And he also made a magazine called The Magazine, with, in which he would get writers to write about tech topics, but also, you know, auxiliary topics too, like raising your kids or playing games and all sorts of various topics that were interesting, but also of respected people in his niche community. And so eventually he sold the magazine off and it's about to come up on their first year of existence. And in honor of that, they're making a physical book out of all of the articles that they have uh, syndicated in the magazine. So it's actually really cool. And um, they're, 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 Asking goal was forty eight thousand. They're at fifty thousand right now, so they've well past it. And I, I think I might get one just just to have in the studio, just to be a part of the Marco lifestyle. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be in color. There's going to be pictures. Um, apparently, it's going to if if they can get five thousand more dollars, they'll have um, hardcover something or other. You get an ebook if you don't pay a lot, and you get a physical book if you do pay a lot. So it's not too bad. It's it's pretty reasonable. I'd say so. Uh, mm-hmm. Look at that. But pretty soon. Yeah, because it, it ends in 42 hours, I think. So <laughs> watch out for... At time of recording. Yeah, watch. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so after it ends, you can just buy the book for $25 if you really want to, I think. time it is uh is it time for raspberry 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 oh it's so good to be a part of it yes so uh this isn't specifically about a raspberry itself but as part of a uh, overall solution to something else so someone wanted to introduce a 27 year old computer to the web and you might ask 27, that sounds pretty old. Yeah, it's a classic iMac, or iMac, way even before then, a Macintosh Plus. That's ancient. Yeah, like from like 1987 or so. I mean, look at that square mouse. Yeah. It's it's an abomination. This predates ergonomics by like a lot. (laughs) That's pretty bad. (laughs) So... Uh, you know, he goes on here, it's a lowly machine, the specs pale in comparison to my Kindle, an 8 megahertz CPU, 4 megabytes of RAM, a 50 meg hard drive, a 512 by 342 pixel black and white screen. And then he goes on to say that his current desktop is on the order of 200,000 times faster, but not he- even including the GPU. Uh, who, but who even cares about desktops nowadays? Yeah, they're, they're pointless. They're, they're going the way of the dinosaur, apparently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he describes how he, uh, you know, got this and dusted it off and, you know, fired it up. But, uh, apparently he had an external hard drive and one of the capacitors blew on that. 
Mm. Or at least the power supply thereof. And uh, But fortunately, he was able to get that fixed. That's a pretty impressive fix. I don't know anything about electronics, but fixing things inside of a computer that was never meant to be fixed is good. So, um, so he decided, hey, let's, uh, you know, make a, make the web browsable on this thing. So he had to do some research and install not only a web browser, but a TCP IP stack, uh, for the whole system. Very capable. So, and I imagine that he had to do some, uh, juggling with floppy disks and such in order for it to happen. But in order for it to connect to the wider internet, he uh, had to take a Raspberry Pi and connect a whole unholy chain of adapters. Uh, yeah, you can see a, bi- a picture of this contraption. Yeah. Um, so it goes from a DB25 uh, serial port to a DB9, and then from that to something else. Yeah, I don't know what it is, though. And that goes through to a daughter board of the Pi. Yeah. So, and uh, had to set up the uh, software necessary to forward the packets between them. And it's amazing it worked. And not only that, to sort of patch the HTTP 1.0 to 1.1 differences. Oh my gosh. Like the uh, host name header. So... But he was able to get, uh, you know, some web pages to pop up. Um, he said, or the uh, the actual video here uh, is fast forwarded, like, you know, double and 4x. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, it took the front page of Hacker News to, uh, it took it six minutes to, you know, download and render. That's pretty bad. Now, also, in his screenshots, he's showing the Macintosh Plus Wikipedia page, which looks surprisingly useful and readable, yes. despite Wikipedia's bizarre stylings now. Yep. So that uh, you know sort of goes to show you the uh, backwards compatibility of HTML and the web. I was just going to say Wikipedia, honestly, because I doubt the Nexus would be even readable on this. Well, you never know. I I know how I built it. So, uh, then again, uh, doesn't exactly look like this browser supports images. No, it, it does not look like that. Or CSS or JavaScript or any modern features. Uh, which, For good reason. You know, granted, this is, you know, old as Methuselah, but, you know, it's, it doesn't have JavaScript on it, so the attack service is much limited. Yes, so limited, in fact, that I don't think anybody's going to try. Um, so limited, in fact, I think the CPU would be slower than your hand darting for the off button. Yes, honestly, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so, yeah, this is, uh, you know, it's, you know, just because he could do this, he did this. So. so do you think in another 25 years that people will try to revive their Windows XP machines for one last hurrah? Like, I feel like the novelty has worn off at this point for modern computers. Like, eh. They're just there. Yeah, they're just there. And, and in 25 years, nobody's going to care to to boot up Windows XP and open Internet Explorer 6 and see a broken website. <laughs> Like, I don't feel like anybody wants to do that. Um, 
Honestly, I might see myself do that, since you can see my 20th century back here. That's true, I see that. And and it's only 15 years old at this point, so just, you know, another decade, and, you know, we're more than halfway there. That's true. I, I just feel like the time is gone for these, you know, consumer computers to be novel enough to care about. Like, who has a Mac? But everybody's experienced the turmoil of XP, so... I don't know. So, you know, then again, you know, XP sort of comes in that, uh, you know, sort of rut in that, you know, at the time many people are transitioning off of, you know, Windows 90, you know, like mm-hmm. 98 or so. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that stuff had, you know, the DOS on it and that had, right. you know, sort of classic Windows. Whereas pretty much everything that ran specifically for XP can run on subsequent versions of Windows. That's true. So. You know, except Microsoft apps and services. Yeah. <laughs> Incidentally. But I'm not... Office. Unless someone has a specific, say, business need for that, I don't think anybody would even try. No. Specifically, anyway. But you know there will be people in 20 years still running XP. Yep. Yep. And uh, being hacked as all get out that they deserve it so but at least this 20th century back here uh doesn't even have an ethernet nick in it anymore that's probably for the better and yeah because i uh uh you know mostly after i discovered that you know the modern smb or the samba server running on my linux server doesn't exactly talk to this too well and my windows 7 at the same time it really doesn't work with xp very well uh this is 98 Oh, it is. Oh, oh, okay. Never mind. And apparently I cannot get a SSH client, uh, you know, SSH FTP client. That that. works. Yes. Well, I don't blame that. That's okay. So I'm like, why do I still have this thing in here? (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, if I need to get data off, say, like, I'm playing a game and I took a screenshot and I want to put it on my blog, there, Mm -hmm. it at least supports a USB flash drive okay. Good, good. Granted, it's slow as hell because it's USB 1. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you think USB 2 is slow, 1 is slower. Oh, I know how slow 1 is. Oh, like, I know. magnitude slower. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's workable if you have the patience to deal with it. And you have a plan. And a backup plan. Well... And, I know I know you're good at that. And a plan B for that backup plan. <laughs> you need a lot of plans, clearly. So, speaking of uh, old computers and whatnot, uh, Tim Mortell shares his story about optimizing a friend's game. Uh, this is back in the 1980s. So, uh, apparently he was in college and his friend had made a side-scroller game. And, uh, you know, he said it was, it was running okay, but, you know, it needed to be a little bit better, uh, because apparently it was jerky or something. So, uh, he doesn't exactly say what specific, uh, you know, computer he was using, but he does mention a, was it a 6809 CPU? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I, I've heard in subsequent discussions on this is actually 
Uh, it was probably a Tandy color computer. Uh, you know, like sort of apparently Radio Shack sold them or something. Oh. But uh, so, you know, he realized that this graphics drawing routine uh, was where most of the time was being spent. So, you know, therefore, that would be the logical place to speed up. And, you know, he goes into the dimensions of the screen and the sprites and the tiles being drawn. So, you know, he unrolled a loop and, you know, actually started counting instructions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he got it down to 120 cycles from 157 uh, to copy just a single tile onto the screen. So, you know, 30 cycles, you know, 30% speed up, you know, that's okay. Uh, but then, you know, he's like, oh, these plus plus, uh, operations are kind of costly. That's absurd. So that got it down to 98, but just still needed to be a little bit faster. So apparently his college had, you know, the library there had a programming manual for this CPU. So he, uh, you know, decided to go down and it's like, oh, well, there's a book on the CPU. So he discovered an instruction that, uh, like a custom instruction for the CPU that will, would allow him to copy things back and forth between memory faster. So that got him down to like 60 some cycles to draw a tile. You know, so like I can go as far as the loop unrolling, but after that, I'm basically giving up. Yeah. And mind you, all this is an assembler. Uh, for right. those of you listening. Um, so then, uh, you know, it goes down and, oh, well, there's some graphic corruption in the order in which all this is drawn. So oh he my had gosh, to, that's so great. He had to corrupt the image being drawn a little bit so that drawing it would fix it. It's terrible. So, you know, that was, you know, another hack upon another hack upon another hack. Um, but then found out that, oh, whenever, like, the sound interrupt routine would actually be, like, a actual interrupt on the CPU. So, uh, like, it would use, uh, like, this one register as, like, a pointer to memory for something. And that would happen, if it were happen during uh, the screen being redrawn, there would be some corruption on the screen. So... They uh, reversed the way that they drew things so that if it was, uh, if a sound did happen, it would happen and then get immediately drawn over. Their effort into this is very impressive. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, this pile of hacks, but apparently it ran pretty good. Doesn't exactly say what it was or even that you can get it anywhere. But it's an interesting story, nonetheless. Uh, I, I just, I, I really, so I, I took a systems programming class, so it's, you know, low-level Unix calls. And after taking the class and learning how processes work on the, on the Unix system, uh, you know, fork and threads through that, I have a much better appreciation for what these people do. And so. This is an assembly, so it's even worse. But the same idea is still there. It's and this was amazing. back in back in the eighties when they really didn't have the internet much. No, no, you you can't uh, can't uh, look up what uh, 
Sigfault means. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, uh, in your uh, retro gaming, uh, you know, such as anything from the 80s, uh, you may have used some emulators uh, to actually play things. In so doing, some scaling is involved to put HypoSD images on our Hyper HD monitors. And there are some algorithms involved in, you know, blowing up the uh, images to ultra-high resolutions. And I got an article here that sort of explains some of them. That's actually really cool in, the, in a very strange way. So, you know, they talk about the uh, different differing scaling algorithms like the nearest neighbor and bilinear interpolation and bicubic and stuff. And uh, even some other algorithms that actually, uh, you know, add detail to mm -hmm. the sprites that, you know, actually doubles the resolution of a sprite, but actually makes it look good. So that's how they made Pokemon Y look so good. I have no idea what that is because I don't watch TV. Yeah, don't worry about it. So, um, like, I've actually seen some of these being used in DOSBox. So, like, especially the uh, HQX uh, scaling. Mm -hmm. so, yep. Interesting stuff there. Well, you know, there's a lot of things with low-resolution art. I'm sure this could be even used elsewhere, not just in old games being used now. True. So, uh, hey, do you know about uh, two-factor authentication? I do know about two-factor auth. I use it all the time, pretty much every day. That's great. So, uh, you may have seen uh, one of Buckface's posts recently in that apparently he was doing some sort of cryptography paper. Yes, and he was doing that. And he was asking, you know, uh, let's see, apparently he said his Google account, his GitHub account, I think his Facebook account. Mm -hmm. uh, he enabled two-factor authentication on all of those, and he wanted to know if there were any more. And, you know, it's like, well, I don't think you're lame enough to have a Windows Live or a Steam or a Battle.net account. <laughs> not, not a Steam account, a Battle.net account. Right, but you think Steam would have it too, but I guess not. It it actually does. Oh, good. I'm so happy. It doesn't. I don't think it involves phone. Oh, uh, that's too bad. They, they send, send you like a. They send email? you a code. Yeah, in an email. Yeah, that's okay though, as long as it's something you can get easy access to on a phone. So, um, I was looking around and oh, hey, wait! Someone made a comprehensive list of all the online services that provide two-factor authentication. So what are what are some of the important ones here? AWS, which is very important for most of the internet, and um, us. Yes, and us. <laughs> um, uh, nobody uses app.net, so that doesn't matter. Uh, Apple recently added can, that can be for some people. It, Apple recently added that two-factor auth. Like I think it was just this summer when they added that actually. So that that's pretty good. Um, as you said, Battle.net that's irrelevant. Uh, Bank of America can be important. I suppose if people have money, they should put it there. Um, uh, uh, the rest hmm. of us just use credit unions. Uh, or Wells Fargo. Dropbox. Uh, yep. And Dropbox is pretty important. And its similarly named competitor, Box. Yeah. Yeah, them. I don't know. <laughs> no. 
Um, uh, GoDaddy. I'm surprised, honestly. Yeah. I, I cannot believe GoDaddy is so proactive in making their customers confused to add this feature. <laughs> I already entered my password. What do I have to enter now? <laughs> uh, LastPass, that might interest you. Uh, no, it doesn't interest me because my good friend and comrade, Matt, here in the studio quite often, needs to use LastPass. And so he has dual-factor authentication. But instead of being you know, phone-based like a normal pro... He is grid-based. So he has a little piece of paper with, you know, kind of like a battleship grid, like letters on the top. Oh, like the, uh, whatchamacallit code, QR code. Right, but it's not not like that, though. So it's not, it's it's a grid of letters and numbers. And so um, when you log into LastPass, you put in your password, and then it gives you four coordinates on the grid and then your grid is unique to you huh. and you put in those coordinates you know whatever those you know row and column coordinates are and you put that from your grid into its prompt and then it'll authenticate you with the dual factor and huh. it, it's pretty cool you know if you don't have a phone or something but it is so annoying because it takes them an extra 10 minutes to see <laughs> the grid and i know you'll listen to this matt so get some new glasses hi matt <laughs> Hey, how's it going? Uh, uh, hi, Mom. Exactly. So, uh, Microsoft um, so accounts. Microsoft, pretty important. Uh, PayPal. PayPal. I'm so glad to to um, protect us. Uh, Steam. As you mentioned, Steam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twitter. Twitter's good. They recently added it, too, but I think it was before Apple, so that that's good. And after everyone got hacked. Um, you know who I don't see on this list? I don't see Sony. I think they should get some uh, dual factor. I think yeah. they need it at this point. Um, Apparently, can... WordPress and Yahoo are on uh, here. I feel like Kickstarter might need that. Uh, like, there's a lot of money going through Kickstarter these days. Um, I think it depends on like what territory they're coming from because I know uh, from the U.S., Kickstarter it throws you to Amazon. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, for Canada, I think it does its own. Payment processing. So that raises a good question. Do you think AWS accounts for Amazon itself, or is it only for the you know developer features? Okay, somehow you just went to crap, but I think you might be coming <laughs> out of that. So do you think AWS um, means all Amazon or just the developer features? Um, I think it was just specific to you know the S three and stuff. That's really unfortunate. So, the one thing that annoys me the most, uh, aside from you sounding like crap, is that the account you set up for me to upload these podcasts is uh, distinct from my regular Amazon. Yes, yes it is. So, I don't honestly know how to fix that. I I don't know. And somehow I cannot change my password on there. Really? Really. Huh. Huh. That's suspicious. Uh, on my AWS login, anyways. Well, I could change it for you, I suppose. <laughs> or you could give me permissions to. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'll let you figure it out later. <laughs> it, it AWS is a very confusing interface. Yeah, some, sometimes I uh, uh, click on, I think it's like the Compute Cloud or something. I'm like, no, uh-huh. no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I do that exact same thing, but... And then it asked me to enable it, and it's like, no, I don't want this. Don't, don't, don't do it. (laughs) 
Yeah, all the hey, time. Hey, you could probably throw your Node.js on there. Um, but then, then I would have to get like an EC2 slice, Elastic Cloud Compute or something. Yeah. Like, you know, one of those little fake VPSs that you could spin up or spin down. And then, uh, is it really worth a dollar a year? Well. Probably, probably, actually. Yeah. I think it would be more than that, though. Like, you know, in all honesty, AWS is great because it's easy to use, but it isn't actually that cheap. Yeah, I've I've heard of like especially startups once they cross a certain threshold that they're like AWS, why are we still using this crap for? It's expensive. Like it is really expensive. Even for us here, just in our five gigabyte per month bandwidth use, it's still two dollars. Unless it's- someone loses his hard drive and has to re download everything. Oops. Twenty five <laughs> gigabyte. And and so that's fine, but even just gigabytes of bandwidth apparently costs an absurd amount. And it's just really weird. So, anyways, back to two-factor authentication. If you find this list incomplete, go to this guy's GitHub and throw him an email or a pull request. And make sure you have your SSH key set up already. It makes it way easier. So, oh, you sound much better now. Oh, good. So, hey, uh, speaking about GitHub... Uh, Cisco, remember them? Uh, you know that um, IPv video and telephone and, and the company that makes iOS. Oh, the real one, apparently. Yes, the one that nobody's ever heard of and cares about. Yeah, that one. Okay, tell me about them. So, apparently, uh, you may have heard on this very podcast that they were making a H.264 codec open source. Well, what I heard is they literally just bought the rights to it from. And MPEG LA. Is that, well, is that true? Not quite. Okay. But it's That's sort right. of it's sort of like that. So, okay. so Cisco decided to open source their uh, uh, their H.264 encoder and decoder as a sort of a middle finger to the MPEG licensing authority. As they should. So, you know, they figured, hey, we're already spending like what five million dollars in royalties on this thing. Apparently, the royalties cap out at about six and a half million. So, if they just open sourced it and allowed everyone to download their H.264 stuff from them, you know, they would only have to pay six and a half million per year, like forever. Right. And no one else would have to pay the MPEG LA anything. That is so wonderful and great of them. So, you know, they, I guess they figured, hey, we're spending this much anyway, might as well, you know, get some uh, uh, karma points for this. That that really does make them look great, and it makes everybody make more stuff to be used. Like, so... Yeah. Um, wonderful. And as far as I know, like, the only bad thing that Cisco's done recently is that uh, some of their routers... Uh, I don't think that they're their Linksys routers, like the actual Cisco branded home routers. Mm-hmm. Um, like they sent through a patch or something or some kind of update that forces users to log into some remote web server to control their own router in their house. You know, I feel like I've heard about this too, and I and I don't know if it's true or not. I heard about it on Ars Technica like a long That's probably, time ago. Probably true then. I've also heard that if you have like Comcast or anything with Doxis, it's one of those cable networking standards. Yeah. 
Apparently, you also have to quite often log in through a third-party interface to control your own router modem thing. Hmm. So maybe it isn't so far-fetched that you might need to do this. Well, um, well, actually, in my experience, when I upgraded my FiOS uh, from 25 megabits to 50, that the uh, apparently Verizon wants you to use the Ethernet or not the Ethernet, the uh, coaxial hookup to the uh, optical networking terminal. Mm-hmm. So it like sort of switches to that by default, I guess. And I'm wondering, I'm at work, and I'm wondering why can't I get to my server? or anything else, and I'm like, oh, well, they upgraded it, and they probably switched it back from the Ethernet to the coax. Right. So I had to call them, and they had to switch it on their end, something in my own apartment. That's interesting. Yeah. So so do you, do you, do you mind that it's coax? Because I feel like my house is not wired for coax. Um, well, I mean, it's pretty weird, since it's about maybe ten feet away, mm-hmm. and... The uh, router thing that Verizon gives you is absolute crap. Of course it is. And, you know, that's the only thing that really talks on coaxial. Right. So, and my existing router is set up just great for, uh, you know, having a home server. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was sort of weird in that, you know, like I would, you know, type in my own host name from here expecting to get my to my server back there right and i get the router login page <laughs> that's bad don't do that yeah so i'm like oh my gosh is does <laughs> everyone see my lo- router login page so i actually well, i had to go to a speed test site in order to you know actually get up that yes it does go to my server uh-huh but, well yeah th- those those kind of problems happen so got to redirect those ports. So anyways, so this uh, H264 encoder thing and decoder, it only supports the constrained baseline profile, uh, but it does so up to like a little bit past 4K resolution. Now, what does that mean? The constrained baseline profile is the simplest set of H.264 features. Oh. So like it only supports like the you know, like the base encoding techniques. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you try to play a Blu-ray with it, it won't work. Even yeah, that's probably okay. Even if you do, you know, do the decryption and stuff, and right. shove like any random MP4, you know, two sixty four encoded file into it, it probably won't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's okay apparently because it's mostly used in teleconference apps, like the one Cisco does. Oh, who knew? No one knew that. So apparently this only also only supports 32-bit desktop platforms. Uh, apparently 64-bit and mobile support is planned. Well, I can imagine that being very high on their list because I'm sure they want their mobile apps to make use of this heavily. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, so. of course, won't matter because on the iPhone... You can't import your own binary, so that's going to be screwed. Yeah. And on Android, I don't know what the laws are on binaries, but I'm guessing that they're not that much better. So, and uh, then again, I'm pretty sure that Android and iOS supply their own H.264 stuff. Yes, that's true. So, but I imagine that all these constraints will be borken pretty quickly due to the fact that it is open source. Yes. So, probably all the guys from 
I think it's X264, the open source, you know, encoder already. Mm-hmm. We'll probably, you know, borrow stuff from there. So, hey, you know Squirrel's favorite operating system? Debian! Yes, yeah, 7.3 just came out. 7.3? Now, does that mean Debian 8 just came out yesterday? Is that what that means? I'm pretty sure it doesn't, because okay. it says here that Debian 7 was just released this past May. Oh, okay. And Debian is known for very long, like, epically long uh, time spans between major releases. Well, that that's good. Unlike CentOS, which is not like that, where they, they release the most major version and the most last previous major version at the same time. Uh, or like Chrome and Firefox that, you know, go up every month. Or day, depending on <laughs> where you are. Yeah. So what's new in, in, in what is what is what is 7.3? What is it new doing? Um, I'm not sure. I haven't really looked that far into here. But I imagine it, uh, you know, updates some packages. Uh, there's a press release. Apache updated. Um, Ice Weasel, Matt's favorite unbranded version of Firefox <laughs> that fails and sucks at everything. Um, oh, and of course, our personal favorite, LibreOffice. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, their PHP package is still behind. They are using PHP 5.4, which is very unfortunate because PHP 5.5 is ready to go, and it is fantastic. Um, I'm happy to say that both Python 7 or 2.7 and 3.2 are available. so oh, you, both you can, the real and the not real. You can deceive yourself one way or the other. <laughs> and, of course, there's Tomcat just for you. I really haven't used Tomcat in years. I know. Let's see. Ever since my last job, I haven't even touched the thing. So. I think you're better off because of that. So, uh, but uh, not to be outdone, uh, Fedora uh, has released version 20. And it now comes with first-class ARM support. That's pretty impressive. So, uh, apparently, like, it's now a policy that, uh, like, any of their major first-class architectures, if any package fails to build for any of these, it won't go. So, Mm. you know, that pretty much provides a uh, barrier to entry, Mm -hmm. you know, for compatible things. So. I, I like how it, it, it makes specific notes for the GCC compiler tools. So, That's always funny to see. Um, I haven't used Fedora in about 10 years. I'm which, pretty much on the same page as you on that. Uh, which is apparently right when it was released. Since Well then. So, um, let's see, I think it was Fedora. It might have been like a few releases down from there. Mm-hmm. But I remember everything being broken, like horrendously broken. I couldn't use it. Well, so I, my my dad was the big Linux guy in the house before you know he started to work a lot, and 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 before I knew what computers were, he was always doing the Linux, and he was always tinkering with a different Linux like every week, and he tried like every Fedora up to a certain point, at which point he just gave up on them because apparently he didn't like how the Red Hat style of anything worked. Yeah, there's definitely, uh, you know, I think I was trying Fedora, Ubuntu, and I think it was Mandrake. Um, 
Like it was back when I was, you know, first learning, you know, Python actually initially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was, you know, way back in the day when Mandrake was called Mandrake. Right. Um, that tells Those you how days long- are gone. Yes. So, and, uh, you know, it didn't really support my graphics card too well, you know, being ATI. Mm-hmm. Of course not. So, and, uh, you know, even in on subsequent machines, you know, I tried Linux and, uh, you know, you know, I'm doing everything the driver says I should do to install it, but it's not working. I still have software accelerated 3D. Why? <laughs> I'm no doing, drivers are the hardest thing. I'm doing everything. I'm in, I'm using sudo and all this other stuff, but it still didn't work. Sudo su, it's better. Anyways. Yeah. So, uh, speaking about, uh, uh, let's see. See, let's go back a little ways to CSS. Let's go onto the web for a moment. I'm good at that. So hipsters don't write CSS. No, they don't. You know what they do write though? They write less or sass instead. Well, you should be writing less, 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 and more sass, honestly. <laughs> so, but apparently I do neither. So I guess that makes me a lamester. Pretty much. So, uh, one key feature from those called variables, uh, have, has actually been a real CSS draft for some time. They have been implemented in Firefox nightly, and they should come with version 29. So, let me, let me take a moment here to describe what these variables look like. So, if you've ever written CSS before, um, usually you have a selector, squiggly bracket, property, colon, value. Mm-hmm. And then blah, 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 bracket. And then you go to the next selector. And so their proposal for the crazy variable scheme is you have a root node selector, apparently. And then you prefix your variable name with the word var and then or var dash. Yeah. And then you assign it some value. And then in your CSS in reality, you can reference the variable by using the var keyword and then wrapping the variable name in some parentheses. Yeah. And that's not a bad syntax, but it is a huge deviation from the SAS and less style of variables. Yeah, I haven't... I personally haven't looked into either of those too much. But So uh, the, the, the SAS and less style of variable is, is very similar to PHP variables, if you've ever used those, or JavaScript variables, if you've ever used those. They're just in the global space. There's no scoping. There's no magic. And they just use a dollar sign to indicate that they're a variable. That's it. So you do dollar sign, bulk bag, colon, blue, uh, semicolon. And then there you yeah. go. You get a variable. And then I, I assume it just does some you know string placement in the back end. Now, right. you know, this is great. But honestly, I don't think that the, the huge benefit of SAS is really the variables. Because I the Nexus is made out of SAS. If you, if you ever go into the depths of it, it's all SAS. But honestly, I use maybe three variables in the whole thing because I just don't I don't think like that because CSS doesn't have variables. Right. Um, I use SAS because it allows me to import many different files into one file and then minify them. That's my killer feature. Hmm. So and, uh, you know, they do, you know, as you said, they have other features, but, uh, you know, variables are definitely one of those. So, um, you know. Chrome betas don't even have these, so 
That's really interesting. So when is Firefox 29 projected to come out? Because I think I have like maybe 26. So, yeah, I think we're on version 26. Uh, yep, version 26. Uh, so it's on a six-week release cycle, so about February, March. Okay, that's that's pretty good. So, and for some reason in our Google Docs, you know, Google wants to correct the Chrome betas to Chromebooks. Yeah, I see that 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 squiggly mark there, and that's really funny. I think I'll take a picture and then send it to Ian because I think he'll enjoy the irony of betas and books. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So, but uh, since Firefox is pretty much the only browser supporting this, uh, at least has plans to support this. Uh, we might have to wait around for a while to for everyone to start using to start supporting it, so we can start using it. Right, exactly. And yeah. and then what do you do for the browsers that don't support it? Like, do you have a backup file? That's absurd. Yeah. So, but there is a solution to this. It's called Myth. It takes your CSS written against these and other specs that apparently no one has implemented yet and downgrades it to CSS that today's browsers can use. So, presumably, what it does is it parses the file, just like a less preprocessor might, and then re-renders it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, that's cool, but that's also suspicious. Suspicious? You might, like, you might as well just use less, then. Well, except, what if you want to still write CSS, like, compliant CSS? You might as well just use less, then. Well, that's not compliant CSS, now, is it? Uh, from what I hear, no. No, less is even less compliant than SAS. So, so then in 10 years, when everyone supports all these specs, you well, wouldn't you have can... to, you wouldn't have to use Myth anymore. Well, no, but, but so when, but so no, actually, because if you continue, continuously write SAS, what SAS will do in the future is just change how they output the stuff you write, because SAS compiles to CSS. So in the future, instead of having variable names as they do now, they'll just output them as they should be outputted. You know what I mean? True. So I don't think there's much value in having Mythio doing whatever it does. That's right, Mythio. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's go ahead and throw in the TLD with that. So, yeah, I, I am with you. But this is this is you know sort of more like a uh, tool that at some point you may not have to use anymore. Right, of course. So, which is a actually a good idea. So, um, just just like whatever Myth- Mythio is doing here, there's also I don't know the name of it anymore, but there's also a, a JavaScript library that allows you to write SAS, and then compile it in real time on the browser just on every client execution, which hmm. is terrible for performance, but it's, you know, a cool idea. So, well, it is just an option. So, I, I look forward to seeing it in CSS in 10 years. Yes. Just in time for Windows XP third birthday. Wait, second birthday, I don't know. <laughs> Hey, when that happens, I might actually have to fire up this and try to run that on it. Oh, that's going to be so much fun. (laughs) And I'm pointing to 20th century. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, hey, speaking about Mozilla stuff, the MDN, 
that's the Mozilla Developer Network, has a new look. And it looks really good. Yeah. Um, so well, what is MDN for everyone who isn't a developer on the network? That's Mozilla Developer Network. Now, you probably are more following the Mozillas than I am. Was it ever called MDC, or am I just making it up? I think you're just making it up. Okay, because I, for years called it mdc and and everybody seemed to know what i was talking about but I, I then i would go here and then it was wrong so i've i've been coming to the mdn for quite some time so and it sort of looked like wikipedia before no it was actually legitimately called the mozilla, mozilla developer center before hmm huh okay i'm not totally crazy and where do you see that i went on wikipedia i'll put a link in your notes here okay so, yeah, I pretty much found this because when I went and looked up documentation for, like, some CSS thing yep. mm -hmm. or, like, how in the world do I use JavaScript or this portion of JavaScript or whatever, mm -hmm. um, I figured out that, you know, just to save some time, just go directly to MDN, do not pass Google, and do not collect W3Schools information light results. So. Right. So um, for what I've been doing recently is I've been battling a property called box sizing. Have you ever heard of box sizing? I have. And if you've heard of box sizing, you might know that one of the coolest new features in CSS3 is border sizing so that uh, elements take up the space that they're actually supposed to take up and it's not tricking you. Mm -hmm. Well, I needed to look up how to un- or disable box resizing um, because I wanted to apply it to all the elements on the page and then exclude some. And it turns out you don't get to do that. And so I, I, I first, you know, you Google it and guess what comes up first? W3 schools. Don't click them. MDC no. is so much better. Yeah. Um, MDN. <laughs> the former MDC. Yes. Um, so yeah, MDN is sort of like the throws the Wikipedia answer about anything that a browser can use in your face. Right, and it's and it's really accurate, and it, and it has actually really great examples yes, for most, and, mostly everything. And don't be thrown off by the Mozilla part. It actually has information on, okay, yeah, Chrome supports this Internet Explorer, right. like 10 finally does, or whatever. It has, like, really in-depth information about, you know, anything you can throw at a browser and it will so, do this. I'm looking at a CSS uh, property called FlexWrap right now and it, it 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 has basic support on Firefox 28, Chrome 21 with the WebKit extension, uh, Fire, uh, Internet Explorer 11, Opera 12.10, and Safari 6.1 again with the WebKit extension. Now even better than that, they even have a mobile um, browser compatibility guide. So that's even better. So, and uh, if you should ever want to cross-reference or go to another place, you can try the Web Platform Docs. This is, uh, you know, another sort of site that's like MDN. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if you should ever not find something on MDN, and you will never not find something on the M MDN. No, <laughs> I, I, I've always been satisfied with the answers I've received there. Uh, you can try web platform docs. So now, so w what was one of the big new overhauls that they they went through 
to to in the new MDM? What's one of the new things? Uh, they switched their back end to some Drupal base. That's interesting. No WordPress love. No. So, so I don't uh, blame them. <laughs> on uh, when they initially did this, they uh, had some you know rather lo- like large performance problems. Like it would take ten seconds or so for a page. But even at that, I would not mind spending 10 seconds for a quality answer on MDN to show up rather than spending like a minute or two wondering what this W3 schools page has. Oh, it doesn't have it. Go to MDN instead. <laughs> so. So one of, one of the features that I immediately caught on to was the new and amazing responsiveness so if you make your screen really wide you get three columns um and one of those columns tracks down the page with you that's the um kind of like um table of contents column it's on Uh the right side that's really cool but then if you make your window just a little bit smaller the table of contents column you know shrinks down onto the top of the page it doesn't follow you anymore Mm -hmm. and if you make it even smaller the leftmost nav column even shrinks away, goes to the bottom of the page. And let's see, if you make it even smaller, things just get smaller. And it's just so wonderful. I just just love to see responsiveness. So have you tried the... Uh, let's see, you don't use Firefox, do you? No. Okay, well, in Firefox, there's a neat trick you can do called Control-Shift-M. And you can just resize the viewport without resizing the browser. Well, that is probably one of my newest favorite features ever. <laughs> so, Can I do this on mobile? So, let's see. I'm, I'm doing it right, right now. So, yeah. yes, it's fantastic. That's so great. So, instead of being 1080p, it's maybe like, what, 1280? I don't know. That's not no. awesome. What would that be? Like 960, I guess? 980. That's what it says up on top. So. No, it does say 1280. That can't be right. I don't know what that means. Don't worry about it. So, anyways, have fun with that. I will do that. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Uh, something. Yes, managers. And we have Squirrel. We have a Squirrel in the document. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, um, he requested that you talk about this newest thing, which is the FSF. But not the one you're thinking of. Not the one you just looked at me like in revulsion at. No, no, no. Um, he's ta- not the Taliban of open source? No, not not that one. No, he's talking, I think, about this feminine coding thing that he's found and now loves, I guess. Huh. I don't know what the whole story is. He really wanted you to talk about it, but I guess he didn't put it in the docs so that you can't do it. Anyways. Yeah. So, speaking about other people... Let's talk about managers for a second. Okay, let's do that. Managers, they apparently really like to see people working hard. But when you see people working really hard on software time after time after time when it's, you know, pretty much already developed, Mm -hmm. it's often an indication of failure. So this guy explains that uh, back in 2004, he was working for a cable TV company their uh, billing and provisioning system, apparently. So he says that the analog TV part uh, decided to have a system based around some Microsoft product. And right. there's like four of their guys and some people at Microsoft, you know, you know, watching over it. They would often be seen working into the night and over the weekends. 
Everyone would drop what they were doing to go help with production issues, often crowding around a single guy at a desk, offering suggestions on what could be wrong or how to fix something. Constant activity, and anyone could see just by looking at that, not only did everyone pull together there as a team, but they were all working really, really hard. The digital TV provisioning team was very different. The code was mostly written by a single guy, and uh, apparently this guy was a... The guy writing this was a junior maintenance developer on it. Um, he uh, had a trouble, uh, you know, trying to, you know, figure out the code initially. Uh, you know, thinking it was overcomplicated, but then the guy who wrote it, you know, showed him, uh, you know, all these great design principles, uh, design pattern and solid principles, unit testing. Soon everything started to make sense and uh, worked on it more and more and came to appreciate its design. Uh, nothing went wrong in production, just hummed away doing its job. It was easy to make changes to, and implementing new features were, was quite painless. The unit test meant that few bugs uh, went its way into production. So the result is it didn't seem like they were working too hard, or at all really. Never worked weekends, never worked past 5.30, and never spent, you know, hours crowded around some other guy's, you know, system trying to figure out what went wrong. So managers announced one day that they were giving out pay raises based on performance. When it was my turn to talk to the boss, he explained that it was only fair to give pay increases to the people who worked really hard, and our team just didn't seem to care so much, not compared to the heroes who gave up their evenings and weekends. So... You know, I guess if in some places, if you want to, you know, milk it for what you got, you design your program badly. That appears to be the case. So I, I, I'm I'm really pleased that, um, you know, they, they, they mention why they or how they were making off with doing less hard work. And that was to build a nice system full of unit tests and design patterns and principles you know, nice what, things. What they should have done is asked for more work, but not the work that the other guys were doing. Right. So that well, they could, so that they could spread their awesome design everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's hard to do that, but I agree. It it is, it mm -hmm. is. So, and uh, well, you know what time it is. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Is it is it time for something devious? It's NSA o'clock. In a very long overdue NSA update, uh, just yesterday, and by yesterday I mean Monday, a federal judge has ruled that the NSA's uh, deeds and actions are probably unconstitutional. Keyword, probably. Yeah. But still, this is, you know, good news. So, uh, it's apparently in relation to two cases that were filed immediately after Snowden leaked, uh, you know, all the stuff. And apparently it was just the day after. Yeah. So they, they were really proactive on getting that going. And, you know, apparently these are, uh, like, liberal guys that uh, filed these lawsuits. Yep. But, uh, you know, that just goes, how, goes to show you how slow the courts work. Well, you know, I mean, you, paperwork is hard to read. So, and all this stuff. So this isn't an official thing, just that it doesn't look good. The well, so what this federal judge is doing then is that he's also trying to get the 
phone metadata scanning program suspended until something goes on through the courts. And if that is managed to be possible, I'd be very impressed. So, and uh, this judge says that the Supreme Court decision that sort of justifies all of this was made in a time when, you know, this you know level of surveillance was not possible. Right. So and one of the things that the the federal judge said was that the 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 the, the thing the, the either the law or the the Supreme Court deal was made in like 1973 yeah. when there were only four phones in the entire office and nobody had a cell phone and the, there was no 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 possibility of surveillance and calling metadata as as they do now. Yeah. So yeah, totally the wrong time era zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stuff like that. Right. So. And I I completely see where he's coming from. You know, you, you need to adapt your laws and uh, your rulings accordingly. And I believe he used the word Orwellian in this. He did use the word Orwellian, which I find unfortunate because it's an overused word. But, you know, I guess I'll get over it. Yep. So and obviously Snowden and several other people approve of this. I feel like that could be a meme. Snowden, Snowden approves. Mm. A lot of I think that's happened to a lot of people. Yeah, I suppose. So and uh Snowden says that, you know, I acted on my belief that the NSA's mass surveillance programs would not withstand constitutional challenge and that the American public deserved a chance to see these issues determined by the open courts. So today, well, today, a secret program authorized by a secret court was, when exposed to the light of day, found to violate American rights. The first of many. Well, that means his that means his plan is working it it and i i don't think it's going slower than expected i think it's just fine yeah so and uh speaking about snowden he uh has sent a letter to brazilians an open letter to brazilians uh presumably because if it wasn't open that the nsa would know about it anyway <laughs> great so and he goes on to say that you know the stuff that the nsa picked on you for you know it's it's not for your own good. It's for political and power control and diplomatic manipulation and stuff. I, I like how it says here today, if you carry a cell phone in San Paulo, the NSA can and does keep track of your location. They do this 5 billion times a day to people around the world. That's kind of interesting. Are there 5 billion cell phones in the world? <laughs> Um, I don't know if that's what it means. I think it just means five billion times among all phones among the worlds of cell phones. Yeah, probably. That's what I hope it means, because I agree with you. I don't think there is five billion phones. So, but, well, maybe someday. I'm I not, hope so. I'm not even sure if that would be good or not. Uh, I, I, I think, I don't know why it would be bad, but, yeah. So... So, uh, meanwhile, uh, I played Mirror's Edge and got creeped the hell out. What'd you do? And you might ask me, hey, Andrew, what does this have to do with anything? What does this video game have to do with anything? Well, I'm glad you asked. You know, how on earth can a bright, mundane world be creepy? Well, the, uh, the uh, game opens up, the opening cinematic says that the government surveillance kept increasing until riots broke out in the streets... Then everyone was brutally cracked down on. 
And I realized that given what we know now about the NSA, I realized that we are living through this exact same scenario, uh, but we haven't reached that point yet. And then, not long into playing the game, maybe an hour or two, I ran across a certain Snowden Plaza. Oh. So, yeah, this game came out in 2009. That's pretty uh, forward-thinking of them. Yes. So, yeah, I was rightfully creeped out, and I have been playing a whole bunch of, you know, supposedly horror games of late, which aren't really that horror-y, if you ask me. <laughs> You're terrible. <laughs> Take that as it is. Well, I, I, I can do that. So last time I mentioned I was trying to uh, use key pass for everything. Yes. And it seems that it's been generally working for me. That's great. So even at work. So, um, and at work I have, see, like for every client there's like maybe one to probably three or four sandbox environments that I need to keep logins for, plus staging uh, a development and a production environment, so that's like, you know, five, mm -hmm. you know, logins per client, and we have like three or four of those. Right. So, you know, having a same password for everything, especially in a production e-commerce system, you know, you might want to take some precautions, let's say. So, um, so, yeah, but that wasn't really the, uh, main worry about this because you know it's you know mostly done in a browser if you need to go and you know tweak a parameter somewhere but um we pretty much you know use any you know eclipse with a plugin into it so mm -hmm. each time it saves it needs to upload to a server and uh you know it comes up with a dialogue saying you know the host name your username and your password Right. So I was able to customize the uh, the auto type feature uh, to you know go ahead and you know work properly. You know, enter in this host name, username, and password. Mm -hmm. That's uh, pretty good. So and then you know each time I do it, you know I select it's like okay, let's see, I want to go to this environment and like Dev O three or something. So, you know, I only have the auto type enabled for my development sandboxes and mm -hmm. not for staging production. <laughs> or production, I suppose. Yes, yeah. that's very wise. So I was wondering, you might have told us last time, but did, do you run this off of a flash drive or just on the computer in general? Uh, I I should be, uh, you know, now that you mentioned it, I have been thinking, like, yeah, I probably should keep on throwing this on a flash drive every now and then. Uh, but uh, at least my personal one is, uh, you know, I throw it up on SkyDrive in the morning. Oh, then, okay. Then when I get to work, I take it down, and mm -hmm. I merge it with my work ones. So and is the merge easy to do, or is yes, it annoying? You, you can import, uh, like, another key pass database file. 
Okay. So, you know, I just, you know, take the raw file that, you know, my keypad stores on my desktop. Mm -hmm. And, like, I don't have to do anything with it. it. Just, you know, just copy the database file and go to another place and import that, type in the password for that, and boom. So I tried KeePass X, which was the cross-platform variant of KeePass, and, like, it worked great on a one computer. And, and you know, in the studio, there's three computers, and then at school, there's, like, 50, and then I have the Mac, and there's a lot of computers in my life. You know, I can't just be slaved to one of them, right? And so, you know, I could, couldn't deal with the fact that I was always out of sync. So I had a password on the home computer. I need it at school now. This sucks. So I, I thought of trying to put it into Dropbox and just running it out of Dropbox. Well, then it just became angry when I would have two instances, two instances open at once, and it's just <laughs> just not a fun thing. So it, it just having it running out of a, a sync platform just didn't work. Um, at least for me. Um. So like I actually manually copy it into right. the sync. And then exactly. manually copy it out, then import. Right. So. Yeah, that that might work a little bit better. But then you have to do all that extra work. It actually now that I have my passwords in there, it like I don't have the need to refresh it that often. That's good. So, um, like I like I still have like a handful of sites or other places that I hardly ever go to mm-hmm. that. You know, I probably should, but I just haven't gotten around to doing them because, like, these places aren't that important to me. Right. So. Changing passwords is a lot of work. I agree. Well, changing a password is, you know, a decent amount of work when you have to do it for, like, 20 (laughs) environments and websites that look pretty much the same. It gets a little Uh difficult. Yep. Like, I just... I just took an hour and build like an hour entirely just to change my passwords in all these places. Well, you're working hard so you can get a raise. <laughs> and I'm increasing security. Right. So. See, look, you're spinning it the right way. The managers love you. <laughs> so, and right now there's not really that too many bugs or to fix or other features to implement right now. So, you know, I've already done this, but hey. Um... And uh, let's see, do you have anything to appreciate or deprecate? Uh, no, I think I'm pretty good. Um, yeah, I'm pretty good. M- maybe next time. Maybe next time, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess if you've been listening to this for a while, you know about the contact link if you want to send in feedback. Um, or if you want to be a guest or even a co-host. I think somebody should do one or both of those things more frequently. So, and uh, there's International Backup Awareness Day for today. So, I so should... you're, you're telling me that I should back something up, right? Yes, and I should probably back up my KeePass database. I don't think this is what you mean, but I'm going to try it. <laughs> ah! No, it didn't work. <laughs> my files aren't safer. <laughs> So, and, uh, of course, hi, Mom, how you doing? Uh, you haven't heard from me for a while, so I keep on calling you, but you're not picking up. That's terrible. So, hey, I tried to call her. 
Well, okay then. I guess that's an effort on your part, so I guess it's fine. So, um, so yeah, are you going to put this show on iTunes? Uh, do you want me to? I mean, do you really want Please. me to? Okay, sure. I think I think it might increase my audience a little uh, bit. Uh, so he- here's what I need to put you on iTunes. And then I know this is going to sound hard, but I need some square album art. <sighs> I thought because I already I- have that. Well, I I just don't know where it is. I mean, I'm sure you do. I just don't know. Okay. But but see, here's the thing. iTunes is absurd. So iTunes requires square album art, and it also requires 14 by 1400. 1400 by 1400 square album art. I and, think I made a mental note to do that when I redid the yeah, album art. Yeah, I, I know you did because you asked me about it. And iTunes is 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 fine in 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 that, and that's great. But the, just the whole process of adding something to iTunes, it seems really complicated and just absurd. It, it's it turns out to be really easy. In 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 the time that at the Nexus has had an iTunes thingamajig, there's been exactly one subscriber. Congratulations. Yes, that's <laughs> right. And the reason I know that is because I apparently iTunes does some kind of weird referrer tracking per user who signed in. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know how which, exactly it works. Which could be a leaky abstraction. I'm sure it is. <laughs> and um, so when you look at the raw server logs for the, the group of sites that I run, and you look at under the Nexus, you can see a particular you know, recurring request looking for new feed updates. So... I wonder if that's someone we know. I don't think so, because no one we know likes iTunes. So Yes, that's right. I do not like iTunes. I have not had iTunes on my system ever. You are so lucky. So it was maybe about 1998 that I decided that uh, QuickTime and even RealPlayer sucked. And well, that's true. They do suck. And, you know, sort of like how Steve Jobs did with Flash on the iPhone, I just sort of went cold, cold turkey for as long as I could. I don't think that's the same thing, but I agree with you. <laughs> but I think it worked out pretty good. That's good. Yeah, you got you got to be careful with the QuickTime because um, you can you can have a recording and you play a QuickTime video and crash. <laughs> yes, as uh, happened once with yes. a very podcast. Uh-huh. With that uh, one astrophysicist guy. Is that what it is? I, I don't know. I thought that's what he was. Um, snow, snow bear extraordinaire. Yeah, something like that. Yes. So. Well, it's been a great show. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. I, uh, you know, I really enjoy talking about developer things occasionally. Yeah. Since... It's a big change from this Moto G that I'm holding. Yeah. You, uh, you know, talk oh, about oh, stuff like that on your gadget show. Oh, darn. I think I just made a leak in the time-space continuum. <laughs> a oh. leak? Yeah. Well, I, I leaked a news story that we haven't newsed about yet. Oh. Oh. Well, then again, only my mom listens to this, so. Yeah, or Ian, I suppose. <laughs> hi, yeah. Ian. Uh-huh, hi. So, all right. Well, I guess that'll be it. So, yep. have a good one. Have a good one.